0: Playoff time is when things start getting serious on the court. Players are more driven than ever to win these big games and keep advancing. Goodyear knows all about being more driven, too. Working hard to help you advance on and off the road. Let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best.
1: It's Monday on the Hoop Collective, I'm Andrew Hahn, there's no Cassidy Hubberth, there's no Chinea Gumake, there's no Ramona Shelburne, they're all on assignment, so I grab the people that aren't on assignment, the lazy guys. Uh, in <laughs> Panic City, USA, we have Dave McBenaman. Hello, hello. In Panic City, USA, we have Kevin Pelton. Hey. And Sitting Pretty, in Oklahoma City, we
2: have Royce Young. Man, look at you just dropping the bars right there, (laughs) sitting pretty in Oklahoma City. Is Uh, that a Blake Shelton song? What is that? Who's Blake Shelton? (laughs) (laughs) He's a native Oklahoman. Okay, disregard.
1: (laughs) Dave, uh, let's start with you. Um, Give us, give us the scene from Cleveland. What's going on over there?
0: Oh man, fans are losing their mind. They want Tyloo fired. They think. LeBron is going to leave before the series series is even over. I think they think he's going to end up on the Sixers playing in the second round or something like that. Um, <laughs> but like honestly, like in, in, they want everyone benched. Jeff Green's never allowed to wear a Cavs uniform again. Um, Tristan Thompson needs to go find another profession. Um, you know, it, it's, it's come to be expected with this team because they have such highs and lows. Uh, I think the fan base aren't used to feeling even keeled as LeBron's trying to, uh, you know, put out there for everyone to latch onto. But I mean, come on, they had a healthy roster for the first time all year. That was the thing that they've been saying, well, we haven't been healthy. Okay. You're healthy. You got embarrassed. They have the oldest roster in the playoffs. Yep. But they had three days off their legs leading into Sunday. Looked terrible. They're playing at home. Looked terrible. So like any, like, excuse that you could say or that you're going to convince yourself going into this playoff run where these are reasons why they're going to be okay they basically dismissed in the first you know six minutes of the first quarter when they fell down 25 to eight and um you know it's discouraging for a reason at the same time though um they still have lebron playing at a high level and they shot eight for 34 from three they make a couple of extra threes early on in that game. They're playing from down eight or nine rather than from down 17 or 18. And you don't have that mental drain of looking up the scoreboard every time out and still seeing that huge deficit. Or you you feel more energized to have a chance to win it.
3: I think the shooting is definitely the place to start on this game. I mean, it, you know, this was a Cleveland team that was number one in offensive ready, I believe, after the All-Star break, despite the injuries that they did have. So to see them struggle as much as they did uh, was completely unexpected. And, you know, you look at the numbers, we have access to the second spectrum tracking data that shows us, you know, kind of based on the the quality of the shots teams got, what you would expect them to shoot. And there were most teams, you know, shot uh, no worse than about 3% worse than you would have expected them to shoot in game one of these series. And then there were two teams, Portland, who we'll get to in a second, and Cleveland. Not surprisingly, the two teams that lost at home in game one were minus 9.3% compared to what you'd expect for the Cavs and minus 9.4% for the Blazers. And I think both of those games look a lot different if those teams don't shoot the way they did.
2: Dave, let me ask you this, because this is something that came up in conversation as many of us media members sat around and ate our dinner before the uh, Thunder Jazz game, and we watched kind of the end of the, uh, the Cavs-Pacers game. Do Is,
0: wait, just quick question. Do, do you make people refer to you as Playoff R when you? Yeah, talk yeah, me? I do. like,
2: well, we have to do something to distinguish between Royce O'Neill and Royce. Young. Okay, and so, <laughs> yes, like, I, I just figured I would take the Playoff R good. moniker. You've he earned could, it. You've earned he it. could, yeah, exactly. He he could just stay Royce. Um, well, it was not a
3: great start for Playoff R for the record. <laughs> <laughs> my,
2: my, our, all of Royces. We all feel it all, all together in My ankles as well. Um, <laughs> Anyway, my question, so how much do you make of this, though, that LeBron is kind of in a different situation than really, it's a different playoff situation than he's been in since he was in Cleveland the first time, Um, and I think Tim Legler might have talked about this as well on SportsCenter, that he doesn't have that guy, he doesn't have Kyrie, he doesn't have Dwayne Wade, he doesn't have somebody to just say, like, let me just take an offensive breather here, like, everything the Cavs do offensively right now is going to be basically generated by him, right? So, like... Do you think that that's taking a mental toll on him? Do you think – I mean he's obviously playing at the highest level he's played at maybe ever, but yeah, what do you read into there?
0: I think it's what we're seeing. I think it's plagued the Cavs all year really. Um, but in the playoffs, everything is magnified, and Indiana's defense was really good. Uh, they were pressuring the Cavs guard, picking up 94 feet. They were getting into uh, the Cavs players on the wings where instead of initiating the offense on the foul line extended, all of a sudden you're initiating on on the the three-point line. And when you're trying to initiate on the three-point line, now you're almost out to half court. And so the the pressure was phenomenal. And Kevin Love has the skill to be a second-best player on the team but not to be a second option in that facet because he can't take the ball off a long defensive rebound – dribble down the court, and put the team into a set. He needs somebody to get him the ball. And, uh, you know, outside of Kevin and LeBron, look, Kevin only got eight shots, so you can't necessarily blame him for that. Again, he needs people to pass him the ball. Uh, J.R. Smith played okay. Uh, Larry Ness Jr. provided a little bit of a spark off the bench, but but no one else showed up. And, again, the guys, if they were to show up, it would be you – know, we talk about guys who could actually create something and take the pressure off LeBron – it's guys who have never been there before. Uh, Rodney Hood made his first playoff start of his career, and you know scored seven points, but five of those points came in the fourth quarter when the game was already decided. And Jordan Clark made his Jordan Clarkson made his first playoff appearance of his career and was was garbage. I mean, he missed wide open shots, the type of shots that you know LeBron's so special at creating, where he draws a double team, does that cross court cross mm-hmm. court pass to the guy on the wing for a wide-open look, the type of look that a lot of guys would salivate for, and he just missed them. And and then he wasn't creating anything off the dribble either. So I think that's a major concern here. Now, is it enough concern that they can't get past the Indiana Pacers? I don't think so at all. I think they still have enough to get past the Pacers and probably another team or two in the Eastern Conference. But when it comes to championship, um, they don't have it.
2: I mean, if you told me, though, that the the Cavs – we're gonna hold the Pacers to 98 points. I would have thought that the Cavs won by double digits. Honestly, you know, like I, it's just like we've all known what the issue around Cleveland has been all year, and they they're coming into the playoffs kind of at a you know at, at a jarring defensive efficiency number and holding the Pacers. I don't know what 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 did uh, Indiana? Do you know off the top of your head Pelton what uh, their offensive rating was for the game? I don't know what it was. Safe to say, I think the Cavs did better than expected defensively even though Oladipo was hot and you know that the the, yep. the Pacers scored reasonably well but like 98 points is 98 points and what's just so shocking is just whether it was the shooting whether it was the offensive uh scheme whether it was LeBron and not having enough diversity whatever it was 80 points is just shocking
3: yeah Indiana had the eighth best offensive rating uh, among the teams in game 1s behind two teams that lost, both Utah and Minnesota. So, you know, Cleveland, of course, was 16th in that category, going back to what we discussed earlier. I was, I was curious about something, Dave, that I saw from Ty Lue at practice today where he said he couldn't get to his best lineup. Right. Are we assuming that includes Kyle Korver, who only got four minutes in this game?
0: Yeah, that was, that was my assumption. And it was an odd answer because, you know, it's, it's ultimately his call whether any lineup goes out there on the court, um, just based on – taking that answer and combining it with some of the context that he provided yesterday was, okay, yes, we knew going into game one, Kyle Korver's on a minute restriction. It probably wasn't four minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. last time. last time he revealed what the minute restriction was, it was 18 for Kyle when they had that loss in Philadelphia. When Kyle didn't play down the stretch, he went with Jetty Osman because Kyle had already reached the minute rest- restriction. Um, but uh, Ty Luce thought that our best chance of winning was to go with a quicker lineup. And that's not Kyle Korver's strength. A, a quicker lineup that can, can play both sides. And the, the lineup that got the Cavs back into it was LeBron, JR, uh, Jordan Clarkson, Larry Nance, and Kevin Love on the court at the same time. So I, I can buy that. Um, but it, it begs the question of when will he get to that lineup? Um, and will he feel so. Pressured or or so reactionary to what happened in Game One, to perhaps want to change the starting lineup so you get Kyle Korver in there. I mean, he gambled or I guess tested the waters a little bit with Kyle Korver earlier in the year at the starting shooting guard, and he played well. He averaged about seventeen and a half points per game, really high efficiency numbers. But then he dealt with the death as his younger brother, and then the foot injury, and and uh, tying the Cavs haven't been able to get back to it. Um, there, but the thing—the tough part here is that you know the, the the best lineup that that Ty loved late in the year was involving Jeff Green, <laughs> and Jeff Green was the biggest albatross for the Cavs in, in Game One too. So there, there's not a lot of things that the Cavs can hang their hats on right now, other than having LeBron James. And I think that's why the all the talk of you know the sky is falling has a little bit of credence to it because you just look at the rest of this roster. And you say, what do you expect Ty Lue to do? Like, if you had the clipboard,
3: what would you do? And and there's no, like, clear-cut answer. I mean, yeah, I think the, the biggest concern about this game is you had to go get LeBron James 44 minutes in game one of the playoffs and still didn't win. Like, at some point, this mileage is going to add up, you would assume. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and LeBron, who
0: likes or doesn't even like to ever entertain the minutes question, usually bristles at it. He brought it up himself after game one where he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll take these two days off in between Sunday and Wednesday because hey, I played 44 minutes. Like I, I didn't think I'd be playing 44 minutes. You don't hear LeBron say that. literally LeBron in the past had said in the playoffs, I can play 48 minutes. And so that kind of gives a little bit of subtext in my opinion of, Hey, um, I need some help out here. I need some of you guys to step up. And I think that goes back to LeBron's strategy to begin with. He doesn't take a shot until there's a minute and 52 seconds remaining in the first quarter because he's trying to set up these other guys to make some shots so then they can feel confident and emboldened enough to play with the type of effort that it takes to win the playoff game on both ends. They miss those shots. They wilted on defense. And then ultimately, the only way the Cavs were able to make a run to get it – from twenty-one down to seven was LeBron. LeBron doing everything, and who wants to be that guy for an entire playoff run? I mean, as much as it would maybe add to the legacy of wow, LeBron's capable of doing anything, uh, it's really taxing on a person. And I, I think you that answer, uh, LeBron talking about the forty-four minutes was uh, pretty revelatory.
2: And, and one thing about this too, though, because I know that you know it is so much of the storyline is it almost always is. And just in the, in the general sense in the NBA, it's about LeBron and it's about the Cavs. but like just, to, just from me watching Victor Oladipo in the opening round against the Houston Rockets last year and the Victor Oladipo that showed up in game one, that guy has clearly been a different player all season long. And you can draw your own conclusions, whatever you want to, you want to do. If you want to, if you want to like, you know, be a take artist and you want to jump out there make because it, it's, make it because, about it's because somehow it's about Russell Right. <laughs> or it might be about the fact that Oladipo transformed his body and committed himself in a way that he never had been before. It's like people also forget, Dave, like that Victor Oladipo played in Orlando. They think that like last year was his only year in the NBA, the one with Westbrook. Anyway. <laughs>
3: right. Um, right. It was probably the Vic- only year they ever saw him play.
2: Yeah, exactly. But Victor Oladipo, he showed up in the postseason last year in Houston, and there was big expectations for him. And you know, I, I think some of the blame for the way Oladipo might have played kind of goes to Billy Donovan because they're – you know, Donovan, I think dropped the ball throughout a lot of the year and not figuring out a way to adequately stagger Westbrook and Oladipo. He didn't let Oladipo run second unit lineups, kind of as the backup point guard. He he sort of in like Game Three tried to do that and it didn't really work out. But Oladipo just he did not perform in the postseason the way that was expected. Look at the way the Thunder got out scored when Westbrook went to the bench. Oladipo just didn't show up. Totally different guy in Game One, and I and I, you know, I saw his post game interview. I saw, um, just the way he handled himself on the floor. The guy is just in, you know, just a huge credit to to him because he has, he has really transformed himself as a player. I think not just physically, but mentally. And look, maybe, maybe I'm giving Russell Westbrook too much credit, but I do think it has something to do with playing a year with Westbrook. Oladipo has talked about that publicly that. He kind of understood that he had to kind of change himself physically and mentally, and I think a lot of Westbrook kind of rubbed off on him, and I think he had sort of that Westbrook mentality going into Game One. I thought
1: we uh, we all agreed that whenever anything in OKC goes wrong, that we were going to blame Royce for that. Is oh, that's true. I thought?
2: That's uh,
1: true. <laughs> um,
2: it's, you know, that's why Oladipo broke out, Han, is that he's away from me now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I was the
2: one that was holding him back.
1: Uh, I'm sure if you run if you add Royce to Pelton's Shaney numbers, like the the numbers are staggering.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. What do we think of Harden's traveling?
2: <laughs> I only get fifteen seconds to talk about that. Fifteen
1: seconds is <laughs> give. Give me your quick take. Distill it down to the hottest volcanic molten lava take and just shoot it out there and we'll move on.
2: James Harden is literally destroying professional sports. (laughs) (laughs) How do we follow that up? Look, I'm sick of people
3: saying that anything you have to slow down and rewind seven times to see that he's traveling, that it's obviously traveling. If you can't see it in real time, the referees don't get that benefit when they're calling the game. If you can't see it in real time, it's not obvious.
0: It's not as obvious as Robert Covington in game one, but (laughs) it's obvious. I mean, there needs to be some standard here. He's created – listen, I was a Sixers fan growing up, Iverson was called for having an illegal crossover for palming the ball and they had to change the rules of that this hop step thing is outside the rules they gotta they gotta crack down on it
2: it's a travel okay it's a travel and i know i understand the gather rules I, uh, but he changes his even if you if you even if you want to accept the fact that like okay he's gathering he gets but he changes pivot feet i mean that that's what happens here so like he basically goes from his right foot to his left foot to his right foot to his left foot so like if if a post player did that, it's an automatic travel.
1: Royce, uh, the OKC Utah series was like the sexy pick of that was going to be hard-fought it was going to be close and like it seemed like the Thunder had a pretty comfortable win late in that game and now with uh, Donovan Mitchell's like uncertainty moving forward maybe it's not quite as hard-fought as we're going to expect it to be.
2: Look, I mean, it's you. You try to kind of temper things. You know, you don't want to overreact too much to a game one, of course, because things could change quickly. And if if anybody's learned anything about the way the Oklahoma City Thunder play this season, is the team that they were game one is not necessarily going to be the team that they are game two. Consistency has been their issue all year long. They've looked fantastic one night, and then they don't look so fantastic the next night. And really, I think. A lot of the barometer for that has been Paul George. Paul George has kind of had an inconsistent up and down season. He played wonderfully in game one. How does he show up in game two? Is playoff piece still, still rolling along in game two? But I will say that yes, the Jazz, the way that they entered the postseason, the way that they defend Donovan Mitchell has been obviously sensational, but maybe, maybe we overstated things just to a little bit of a degree thinking that the jazz were were built for this series. You know, typically we can almost distill things down to who has the best player and then who has the second best player. And I think it's pretty clear the thunder have the two best players in this series. Um and they have guys that can create their own offense, get their own shot and dominate and win a playoff game on their own. Because Paul George for the most part won game 1 on his own. The difference between the thunder and the jazz is Donovan Mitchell's probably going to have to win multiple games on his own. Paul George could win a game two on his own. Westbrook could win a game two. Carmelo Anthony is a threat to go off in a game two. The Thunder have those kind of weapons, and that's what that's what you win postseason games with. That's what you win postseason series with. And Donovan Mitchell s- certainly was extremely good for a rookie making his playoff debut. Set set the uh, you know scored the most points for a rookie making a playoff debut ever with twenty seven points. He was he was wonderful. But how does he hold up, especially now if he's battling against a sore foot? How does he hold up in this series? And so. You know, Maybe we all kind of got ahead of ourselves saying that the Jazz were were built for this and that they were ready to go, and Donovan Mitchell's rookiness wasn't going to play much of a factor. I don't want to overreact too much, but I think just based on the way that game one went, the Thunder looked like a team that's built for the postseason while the Jazz looked like a team that's kind of trying to find their way in it.
3: I mean, I did have the thought during the game, if Joe Engel is getting taken out of the game, which also is credit to Paul George defensively, and I saw some great stats from ESPN Stats and Info about – you know what what uh, Joe Ingles shot with Paul George on him versus off but uh, if he if him being off is that big of a problem that seems like a concern right. about your offense yeah. at the same time i mean you know really where this game you know if utah played like they have the second half of the season defensively they did enough offensively to win the game it was the fact that they couldn't stop oklahoma city's offense that really determined this and it it'll be interesting to see if that is just a case of that individual talent winning out against you know, guys who have been pretty good defensively or, you know, if it, if it was just that one, that, that great Oklahoma City game that, as Royce mentioned, we've seen from time to time.
2: Billy Donovan's kind of referenced this a little bit um, after the game and then today again in practice, that there is kind of a fool's gold element that I think that the Thunder are concerned with, that it was just a great shooting performance specifically from Paul George. And how much of it is that? Versus how much of it is that the thunder you know holds some sort of advantage, and so I think they're trying to kind of guard against the the idea that like oh, okay they're they're good, this matchup is in their favor and and they can dominate the series other than maybe like a great player got hot in a game because I think there there are those two elements to kind of play against each other there, um but like I, you know the thunder had a very clear game plan i think uh defensively they wanted to you know tempt Ricky Rubio to shoot and score which obviously played out in their favor look utah's going to utah can flip this series around very quickly i think you know they they if the thunder don't shoot it well and even open shots don't go in you know this thing can turn around cuz i think the jazz are built to win like a 92-90 game i don't know that the thunder are capable of like winning that kind of game um so this thing can turn around really quickly but i think just if we're if we're drawing conclusions from a game 1 you can see uh, kind of the difference in the playoff makeup between the two teams.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask how would this certainly game one, and I don't want to go all the way down the lines of the series. But how does it make you look at Rudy Gobert's Defensive Player of the Year candidacy? And I, I understand it's a regular season award. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to, you know, uh, blur the the conversation here. But I, obviously, he didn't have a much of an impact on the Thunder's offense in game one. And, and yeah. is that is that because? You know, he's not going to guard the guys on the perimeter or whatever, um, and guys shot particularly hot, or is it that you know the way the Thunder play, it doesn't affect them quite as much? Go- that's Go a Bears. good question,
2: Dave. That that's an interesting way to think about it. You know, I mean, look, full disclosure, Go Bear got my Defensive Player of the Year vote, and mine like, too. I mean. It's hard to ignore those numbers. It's hard to ignore the fact that Jazz are the best defensive team in the, in the league throughout the season, especially with Gobert healthy. But, you know, Paul George said this the other day, Dave, and I thought it was really telling that he kind of said like, look, we're going to have to play in the mid range, but the the thing is, is we're going to have to be decisive about it. We're, you know, and I think that that's kind of the element that Gobert brings. Uh, to an opposing offense is he can kind of, you know what you're supposed to do. You know, you know, you're supposed to generate threes and get in the deep paint and score at the rim. Right. And that's what teams are conditioning themselves to do. And they kind of battle against this idea of shooting in the mid range and the thunder have good mid range shooters. But there, you know, every team has tried to kind of build a a system where you don't really rely on those, but the jazz basically dare you to do it and go bears as good at anybody as protecting the rim. So George was kind of like, you know, if you can just be decisive and not second guess and step into these shots and take them with confidence, really what, what that comes down to is the jazz defense suddenly isn't that good anymore. You know, it's like, if you're knocking right. down the, if you're knocking down the shots that they're giving you, like, you know, either, and I think that. Utah made a subtle adjustment kind of in the second half where Gobert started trapping a little bit more and they brought him out because, you know, they basically were watching a team knock down and just kind of kill him with jumpers. You know, the Thunder scored 32 points in the paint, which is not a lot. Um, but they didn't need to score him there. So, you know, Westbrook often Westbrook is, is a guy that can play in mid range in the mid range a lot. And, and he can shoot you out of games. And I kind of saw it that way, Dave, that like, I felt like this. a lot of people talk matchups. I thought the the interesting matchup was Westbrook versus Gobert. How does Westbrook read the pick and roll? How does he read Gobert and drop coverage? How does he handle that? And, and basically, how well does he shoot his mid-range jumper? And if he shoots it really well, I think the Thunder are going to win the series.
3: And I think in the Jazz, you could probably live with that Westbrook stat line from Game 1. I mean, it was ultimately yeah. 29 points on 29 shooting possessions. He only scored two baskets in the paint. So I, I think that was good enough to win. It's just you know sometimes the a big part of the debate about defensive player of the year and all defensive teams is like how much credit do you give players if their te- if opponents shoot threes worse when they're on the court versus on the bench and i've been very skeptical of the fact that individual players have much control over that and i think we saw it there where you know gobert often allows the jazz to stay home on shooters and take away three point attempts but once that shot goes up and it's paul george you know, shooting even over a, con- a contested shot over someone who's much smaller than him. You just don't have that much control over whether the shot goes in or
2: out. That's an interesting way to look at it, for sure. Yeah.
3: The other the other matchup I thought was important in this series that is probably worthy, Royce alluded to when we were talking about the Pacers series, actually, the Pacers game, is what happens when Westbrook is on the bench. Because the mm-hmm. Thunder were minus one with Westbrook on the court in this game. And last year, if that happens, yeah. they lose by double digits. Yeah. Right.
2: I think what was it, Pelton? You might remember off the top of your head. I think the Thunder got outscored by like 50 points per 100 possessions in the Rockets series last year, or something it was insane, like that. Yeah, it was like I mean, they they turned into a, a you know a G League team basically when he went to the bench and um, and Billy Donovan. You know, he made a, he made a small tweak in his rotation last night where he, he, you know, the first like 10, 15 games of the year, he kind of liked playing Carmelo Anthony with the second unit, you know, when it, when, when you would look at staggering the three players and then he went away from that and everybody would kind of there was kind of reasons for it. You thought maybe it's like, well, you didn't really want to feed into mellows inhibitions of like, you know, it was like you put him out there with four guys that like, look like New York Knicks players that he felt like, oh, okay, I can be, you know, New York mellow again. I can, <laughs> you know, hit me in the post and let me jab step a little bit. And like, those were the habits they were trying to break from Carmelo. So like, I think that, that may be why Billy kind of went away from that. But, um, you know, he was really effective, uh, playing with that second unit, uh, in game one and you know maybe Donovan was saving that for the playoffs and then it in the fourth quarter Donovan kind of flipped it he went with Paul George with the second unit so Look, the Thunder bench got really solid production out of Alex Abrines, who uh, I think in, you know scored 14 points in 18 minutes. Jeremy Grant has been really solid, but the Thunder bench has not necessarily been great. But what can make it really effective is that Russell Westbrook can sit down, and that bench can play with Paul George or Carmelo Anthony or even Stephen Adams. So you know that that's what can make it really uh, really effective for him.
0: Royce, do you think he's going to stick with eight guys? Because basically, I mean, Patterson I see got eight minutes. Yeah. Ferguson got two minutes. But basically, it's an eight-man rotation. Is there any any concern with all all the starters playing? You know, high thirties.
2: I, I think outside of foul trouble, Dave. I, I think that he'll probably stick close to that. You know, right. I, I, that was kind of a lot of people with, within the team were kind of leading up to that. You know, Billy ha- is kind of an experimental coach. He likes to try out different rotations. If you look at the lineup data for the Thunder, I mean, there's so many different combinations out there because he likes to mix and match. And some nights he'll play eleven or twelve guys, and some nights he will play nine, but. you know his his postseason track record is to kind of shorten it up Um, uh so you know i that that probably is going to play out you know it was kind of weird the ferguson sub was kind of odd he kind of just threw him in there really quickly and took him out but it, it will probably be eight maybe maybe nine at different points
0: right
1: Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this either, so we'll do another 15 <laughs> seconds. We'll go like KP Dave Royce. How about for this one? Uh, is Giannis getting respect in the playoffs? Did he get hosed on that sixth foul?
3: I, I don't have a strong take on that one in particular. I mean, Wait, I think he'll, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm not prepared like I was with the Harden travel take. That's
2: like, uh, it's like first rule of fight club. You cannot not have a take. <laughs>
3: I mean, I feel like he gets the benefit sometimes. On maybe he he goes three steps
2: sometimes every once in a while. So I, you know, you, you, you give you give and you get. Cosmic balance playing out there.
0: A scorching hot take. Uh, even beyond him fouling out of the game, you got to win. If the Celtics don't have Hayward and the Celtics don't have Kyrie Irving, and you have a chance to have your team steal a game on the road, you know whether the the fouls were against you or not. Uh, I wanted more of a killer instinct.
3: Well, maybe play him at center before the last five minutes of regulation when they immediately go on a huge run to tie the game.
2: Come on, Joe Prunty. I actually think Giannis did foul. I think he grabbed his arm. But, like, I mean, I I never really buy into the whole respect thing. Like, you're a star. You get the respect. I hate to see a player foul out like that. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I hate to see a star player foul out in a big moment. Um, That's just always kind of a bummer for the game. But, like... I, I prefer not to see preferential treatment for stars personally. I think a foul is a foul, and like, I think the game is better off if you just like call it square across the board. But, um, anyway, that's that is that is like the most lukewarm take of all time. Yeah, it's
1: not great. It's not
2: great. I just like fairness in sports. <laughs>
1: KP, you were on site for the second upset of the series so far uh, with the Pelicans taking down Portland in game one. Uh, what What was your read from the ground?
3: Yeah, so after the game, I thought that it was kind of dismissive maybe of the Blazers to say that they just missed good shots. But as I mentioned earlier, you look at the shot tracking data and it backed up what they were saying. Uh Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, or I guess Lillard more so than McCollum did get difficult shots because of the way that New Orleans was committing two players to the ball handler and the pick and roll and and basically daring either Yusuf Nurkic as the role man or Portland shooters on the weak side to beat them out of that instead of letting Lillard get, you know, the kind of looks that he is normally feasted on. But then the three pointers that the their role players did get were so wide open that it it kind of ended up evening out in the end. And I, I do think they'll shoot better. Uh, one interesting wild card Maurice Harkless who's been out the last three weeks here after knee surgery he's been ramping up his workouts was doing more after practice today and he is now questionable for game two with a chance to play so you put him instead of Evan Turner on the back side of those pick and rolls it is a much more difficult open shot to give up
0: I, like the Blazers are one of the teams where if I get back home from a, a Cavs game and they're playing during the regular season I, I try to watch this Lillard just electrifying and it was it was almost odd to me though that and again like in the Cavs game there was so much pressure on their guards and if you always have a double coming at you what are you supposed to do you can't just you know uh, put your head down and, and split it every time but um, the fact that it took that long for him to get into the game and be an effective player uh, it was like almost disorienting for me because usually when I, I tune into the Blazers I just see
1: Miller just. Just dominating and, and flame throwing from all over the court. Despite that, like, I feel like Royce touched on this a little bit, uh, with the Thunder. Everyone assumed that Anthony Davis was going to be the best player in the game, but then, like, Portland might have had more balance or, like, the next mm-hmm. few guys after that. Drew Holiday was really good in game one. Like, yeah, he those was. were the two best guys on the court, I thought.
2: Isn't he kind of the, uh, he's kind of the temperature gauge for them. Like, Anthony Davis is going to be spectacular for the most part, and if and if it, if Drew Holiday can literally like legitimately step up to feel like he is a complimentary player to Anthony Davis, the Pelicans suddenly go become a pretty good team. They're pretty balanced. I mean, they've got pretty good spacing with Meritage and Etan Moore can be good at times, and he he can he can fill it up a little bit. Ian Clark was really good in the game. Hit, hit, hit I don't know what he had ten or twelve points or something like that. Yeah, that
3: clutch three That's big yeah. clutch three. That's um, Blazer Killer. He is
2: he? <laughs> See? you always need one of those. Um, I mean, they've got some. They're not deep. They're not like overly talented. They are very clearly, you know, the Anthony Davis show. But when you know Drew Holiday is, he's first team all defense in my mind. He's had a spectacular season on that end of the floor, and he he can really he he is uh he's kind of hot and cold offensively. Some nights you can kind of look at his box score, watch him play a game, and you're like, I don't know, three of eleven shooting for nine points. He wasn't very good. But in game one, I mean, he was fantastic on both ends. And if if that's the kind of player that can complement Anthony Davis, then the bla- then the Blazers might actually have a problem here. Because, look, Anthony Davis is the best player in the series. There's no doubt in my mind. Can he win four times on his own? I don't think so, And especially against the firepower, like you mentioned, of the Blazers, Dave. But if somebody else is there for them, then this becomes a pretty interesting series to me.
3: I was surprised, by the way, that – Every uh, every person who was asked to pick for ESPN before the series picked the Blazers. I mean, these teams were one game apart in the standings. I think the Blazers were the better team in the regular season. Obviously, home court is a big advantage, but now you've lost that. So uh, I think this may have now accelerated above Thunder Jazz is the most interesting first-round series.
2: Do you think it's like just an inerrant skepticism? I don't know, not skepticism. That's That's the wrong word, but like... I don't even want to say a lack of respect for Anthony Davis cuz we all acknowledge that he's an amazing player, one of the, you know, top 5 or 6 in the in the league. But it does seem like we don't give him the same type of benefit of the doubt to say like he could win a playoff series in the same way yeah. that we do with some other guys.
3: I mean, I think it's probably more about the sporting cast when you look back at that series they played against the Warriors, you know, 3 years ago, the other time Davis made the playoffs and he averages 30 plus a game and they get swept. I mean, that's yeah. that's I think if you were you know, expecting the Blazers to cruise in this series, what you were expecting, but it does seem like he has more to help this time around.
0: Yeah, and just, I mean, I think generally, once they lost DeMarcus Cousins, it was like, what what is this team really capable of? But Davis was great. You know, this is like totally nerding out, but Zach Collins, I really liked his game. Um, he had some big shots and his floor game, like he was getting deflections and just, I don't know, for for being as big as he is, like I, I want to see him develop, and I think he has like maybe star potential, maybe not like all star potential, but like averaging a, a solid double double on a playoff team potential.
3: Yeah, I, like yeah, I think him a that's lot. reasonable. I, I would not be surprised if we saw more of him in game two because I was just going to say that, yeah. is he
2: the best option to defend uh, Anthony Davis Pelton? I mean,
3: Ed Davis, I think probably did the best job of their bigs in game one. I mean, Amita is also in that mix, but you kind of need him defending Miritich. But you know the The Blazers yesterday at at their practice compared the way New Orleans was defending the pick and roll to what the Clippers did two years ago in the first round in that series. The Blazers came back to win after Paul and Griffin were hurt. And the guy who had a big series for the Blazers then was Mason Plumlee, who was making plays as the role man, either dunking or making the right decision to kick it to shooters. And I think Nurkic, Yusuf Nurkic was a little bit too indecisive in that role in game one. If he can't find that right balance between when to go finish and when to hit the shooter, then I think we could see Collins in more pick and pops in that center spot. Right.
1: Let's end on this, Royce. What's one thing that you've noticed that media, the Twitter sphere, the basketball intelligentsia is overreacting to after Game One of the playoffs?
2: I'm not allowed to talk about hardened traveling, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we, 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 we <laughs> hit that. <laughs> uh, uh, I would say probably the the biggest reactionary thing. Yeah, that's a little bit tough to... i mean
1: a lot of people are saying like sixers eastern conference finals sixers maybe okay State that's
2: finals. a good one but i kind of oh. sort of believe that so oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. maybe i'm in that in that group i mean i do think look i think in any general game one sense it, it's a bad idea to completely draw any conclusion from a game one and i i, I do think that there are takeaways you know Look, I was watching inside the NBA last night and Charles Barkley literally was just sitting there talking about the Thunder and Rockets matchup, like previewing the series. (laughs) Like, okay, like, like basically just breaking it down as if, as if both teams don't have three more wins to get. Like uh, there's, we see it too often when you, when you watch a team play really poorly in a game one and they come back in a game two, things can, there, there really is no momentum in a series. like people want to believe there is. It's just the next game and then a result happens and then you move on. So look, I don't really – I'm not really reacting, especially for the road teams. Road teams is and they just want to win one of two. That's all that they're really interested in doing. So if you can just win one of two, then it doesn't matter if you got game one or not.
0: Sorry, I just sneezed and couldn't hit the mute button on time. <laughs> but
2: but <laughs> bless you, Dad. I, I thought that was it. I thought that was a, an acceptable. I was, trying to, I was my, trying
0: to cover cover the sneeze slash hit the mute button.
2: Notice <laughs> uh, how professional I was in just talking to no, you were great. You're great.
3: <laughs> I, well, I think my answer we already talked about. It's Cleveland. I think people are massively overreacting to this. I think their offense is going to be fine. It's a make or miss league. Uh, it's a cliche, but I wrote about it a couple years ago during the playoffs. The stats very much bear it out. That you know, the how, whether you make shots has more impact on whether you win a game than whether you get good shots. But whether you get good shots tends to be more consistent from game to game than whether you make those shots. So I think that's going to flip in a hurry.
0: Okay, I'm going to go with the Kawhi Leonard saga. Ooh, good one. Every, everybody now has a take on all well, the actual uh, dirty culture behind the Spurs winning, and it's not all. Uh, what it seems to be on the outside, and uh, you know, Pop and RC, it's it's uh, it's a glass castle and everything like that. And on the other side is okay. Well, who is this group that's advising Kawhi Leonard and and he, you know, what a poor teammate for him to be putting his health in New York above sitting there on the bench to root on his guys. And ultimately, none of us know what's going on here, and and that's. That's because of the way the Spurs run their organization. That's because of the way uh, Kawhi's camp has chosen to disseminate information while they've been away from the Spurs. And, you know, the the people actually know are Kawhi and Pop, and neither have told us the true story. So everyone else is, we're just grasping at straws and putting out, you know, really unfair opinions for for both sides. And so I'm just kind of tired of that period.
1: Okay. And so how about the second set? What are we not reacting enough to after game one's?
3: I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was overshadowed because it was just the first game of the weekend and so much else has happened since then. But I think we're maybe underreacting a little t- bit to the fact that the Warriors looked as good as they did in game one. Granted, against the Spurs team without Kawhi Leonard. But they had looked so bad at the end of the regular season. So it was nice to see that, you know, we suspected they would be able to flip the switch. But it's nice to see that confirmed in game one.
0: I'll go with the Toronto Raptors. That. You know, I, there was a weird, very odd streak where they couldn't win one game one to open up the playoffs. But you know, they fought through that game. It wasn't an easy, easy one. The Wizards uh, really controlled most of it for the first three quarters or for two and a half quarters, I should say. And then, you know, the Raptors took care of business. They have the momentum that they wanted. They put themselves out there where Kyle Lowry basically said this is a, a must win game to start off the playoffs, which doesn't make any sense, but he did. And, and, and they, they got the win. And now the, the East's best team all year long is setting themselves up to advance in the playoffs and you know, change people's minds about how people view them. So I think, uh, they just deserve credit for, um, the way they start off the
3: playoffs. I just, I was realized- also considering that. So thanks for
2: getting to it, Dave. I just realized, I just realized what, my, uh, what I should have said people are overreacting to too much, and that was Oladipo getting away from Westbrook. There was another opportunity for me to rant about that, and I missed my opportunity.
3: <laughs> you know, I, I really badly wanted to tweet during yesterday's game. That, imagine how many points Paul George would have right now if Russell Westbrook wasn't holding him back. <laughs> <laughs>
2: he would have had 86 points. Um, I w- here's what I think people aren't reacting to enough. The Wizards are a dumpster fire. like Like, seriously I I don't know who knows I just got through talking about don't overreact enough to game one but the way they finished the season like I know Scott Brooks pretty well got to know him in Oklahoma City he looks exasperated right now and just the the things that he said in the media I I think I think the the Wizards have broken my poor Scotty and I and I feel and I feel bad (laughs) for him but look it could change they do have a lot of talent I want to couch this but I think that the Wizards are like on the fringes of like completely imploding. I mean they should not be the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. Injuries are not. They they had too many good players. They, they were a much better team last year. And I just think the Wizards are in a really weird spot right now.
3: Would Scott Brooks use the term exasperated?
2: He would say he would say frustrated because that's his go to word is to combine <laughs> flustered and frustrated, which always was my biggest pet peeve in the world with Scott Brooks is that he constantly said frustrated. And here's the crazy <laughs> thing about that is, is Billy Donovan comes to town and he also says frustrated. So I feel like it's this huge conspiracy that <laughs> Sam press in the front office have come up with just to torture me. You, you sound pretty, pretty frustrated what? about it. <laughs> I'm
0: <laughs> so very when flustered you, When it. you when, he sco- when you call him my Scotty, what does he call you in return?
2: He calls me Playoff R.
0: <laughs> playoff R. There you go. Excellent.
2: Why, why is it Playoff P and not Playoff PG? Can someone explain this to me? Because he named himself. That's just, I guess, what you do. You just name yourself.